The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I know I use my children in sermon illustrations quite a bit, and that's because that's a lot of what my world is filled with right now, but it's also because I love them and think about them often. And it's because God teaches me a lot about my relationship with him through my relationship with my children. You know, when our children are first born, something that becomes startling obvious is that they are absolutely helpless, that they are extremely needy. Uh, They need their parents to feed them. They need their parents to change them. They need their parents to move them. They need their parents to support their neck. They need their parents for just about everything except sleeping. And even with that, they need their parents to help them fall asleep. And so babies are very, very needy children. And as children grow older, they grow more independent. And it's not that they become less needy, but it's that their needs change. For example, this past week, Trisha took a picture on her iPad and she sent it to me with the title, Look Where I Found Cooper. Can you put that picture up? This is where, I'll get out of the way. So this is in our garage. And my son Cooper, who's two years old, uh, crawled across the trampoline somehow onto a six-foot ladder and then up onto an extension ladder. And you may say, look, he doesn't need help. He could get up there. But he definitely needed help getting down from there. And you see, like, as, as people evolve, they still need help. As children evolve, they still need help. As they develop, they just need help in different ways. As we look at today, today's passage, Christ reminds us that we are children of God. And we are not just children of God. We are needy children of God. No matter how much we think we can do this life on our own, we are in absolute dependence on our Heavenly Father to do anything in this life. If you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. It's page 811 in the Red Bible, page 1158 in the Children's Bible. We're continuing our four-week series on the Lord's Prayer. As we mentioned last week, many people memorize the Lord's Prayer, but don't really even understand it. I was struck by a quote this week from Martin Luther, who said, how many pray the Lord's Prayer a thousand times in the course of the year, and yet have never really prayed it or tasted it? My hope today, this series, is that we would pray the Lord's Prayer, maybe for the first time, in a way that we understand what we're praying, that we would taste the beauty and the glory of it. The Lord's Prayer is not something simply to memorize and to recite, to earn God's blessing, and so we recite it 50 times, that way God will bless us. The Lord's Prayer is giving us a pattern of prayer, categories for a prayer, even priorities in prayer. And my hope is that for you and for me, it would become very sweet, and it would become a pattern in our own prayer life. So let's read together. We'll start in verse 9 and read through verse 15. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 6, page 811 in the Red Bible, 1158 in the children's. Verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this example of prayer that you set for us, I pray that we would maybe understand it in greater depth than we ever have before, that we would taste it, the beauty of it, that we would savor it, and that it would maybe even pattern our own prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I just want to recap a little bit from last week because it really is the foundation for what we're going to talk about this week. We started with the preface, which is our Father in heaven. In this preface, Jesus is telling us that our prayer is established on who God is and our relationship with him. God is in heaven. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And yet he is our father. We are in a covenant relationship with him. We are his beloved children. He cares for us and delights in us. And so we go to him in prayer. It goes on and it has six petitions. We covered the first three petitions last week. Petition one, hallowed be your name. Our chief goal in this life is to hallow God's name, to glorify God in all of our life, that his name would be exalted both in our public life and in our private life, in our homes and in our city and in our world. We pray that God's name would be glorified. The second petition is your kingdom come. We live in a very broken world, a world full of disease, a world full of death, a world full of broken relationships, a world full of hurts and misery. But Christ brings a kingdom of redemption that makes all the sad things come untrue. And so we pray that he would make his kingdom come, that he would reverse the effects of the fall, and that he would bring life and forgiveness and freedom. And so we pray your kingdom come. And then the third petition is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ has a unique vantage point. He has experienced heaven. He has seen the holiness and the happiness of the angels as they are perfectly obedient to God. But he has also experienced earth and sin, seen the disobedience and the misery of people. And so he teaches us to pray that our obedience and our happiness would match that of the angels in heaven. And so those are the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And what we learned from this, the overarching thing that we see about this, is that we are called to have radically God-centered prayers. That we are supposed to start with God's agenda. That we pray that God's name may be known. That God's kingdom may advance. That God's will may happen. We're so prone to pray for our own agendas, aren't we? We're so prone to pray that our name would be made great. That our kingdom would expand. And that our will would be done. But Christ tells us we must put God's agenda first. And it's within that agenda, within God's agenda, in submitting to that agenda, that we are to pray for our own needs. Realizing that what we ask for may not be the best thing. That God is much wiser than us. And so we ask these things, but all in submission to God's glory and God's will and God's kingdom. So let's look at the fourth petition. We'll look at petitions four through six today. Petition four, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, when Jesus talks about our daily bread, he is talking about our necessities, such as food, such as water, such as housing. 
And so he's teaching us to pray for our necessities. Now, if you're like me, you probably say, why would I pay, pray for this? I already have plenty of bread, right? I have enough food to probably last me three months if I needed it to. In some ways, I need a little less bread, right, in my belly. And so why would we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, there are several reasons. I'm going to give you three. One reason we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread, is to foster gratitude. When we are praying to God, give us this day our daily bread, it is a recognition that we do not deserve our daily bread. We don't deserve any necessities because of our fallen nature. The Westminster Shorter Catechism actually puts this in much better words than I do. It says this, question 193, what do we pray for in the fourth petition? The answer it gives is that in the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, acknowledging that in Adam and by our own sin, we have forfeited our right to all the outward blessings of this life and deserve to be wholly deprived of them by God. It goes on later to say, we pray for ourselves and others that both they and we waiting upon the providence of God from day to day in the use of lawful means may of his free gift and as his fatherly wisdom shall seem best, enjoy a competent portion of them. One of the greatest lies of Satan is you deserve. You deserve. You have had a hard week. You have had a hard life. You deserve fill in the blank. I deserve a nice house. I deserve a nice break. I deserve a nice vacation. I deserve bread on the table. I deserve a TV. I deserve a car. None of those are true. Maybe we say, I deserve a bigger car, a bigger TV, a bigger loaf of bread. In reality, there is only one thing that you and I deserve, and none of us want it. <laughs> we deserve the just judgment of God. We don't deserve even the basic necessities of life because of our sin and rebellion against God. Once we understand, once we admit that we deserve absolutely nothing from God, it is then and only then that everything becomes a blessing, that everything becomes a, 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 an opportunity to give thanks to God, an opportunity for gratitude. I remember when I was in high school, um, I was the only child left, and so me and my parents, we went out to eat a lot. And we would go out to eat at places, and they would put price limits on what I could get. Like, you can get $10 worth of food or $15 worth of food or whatever it might be. And I just remember just being angry. Like, why can't I get what I want? What I can't, why can't I get everything on the meal menu? And I remember even as my mom cooked these home-cooked meals, I don't recall a single time from birth through high school that I ever thanked my mom for making all of these tremendous meals. Why? Because I was entitled to them. So I thought, I deserve this good food. I deserve to get whatever I want because I am special. Well, I went off to college then. <laughs> and I found out that home-cooked meals and eating out was not a necessity. It was a luxury. And it was a wonderful luxury. And so when my parents would come to college and visit me for a weekend, Almost every weekend, they probably did this with you, they would take me out to eat. And I remember just thinking, this is the nicest thing a person has ever done for me in my entire life. They've taken out to me, me out to this Mexican joint. I don't have to eat the fraternity food. 
I get to go out to eat, and I don't even have to pay for it. And I remember just being so thankful and actually thanking them. Thank you for taking me out to eat. Thank you for this meal. What changed? Well, before I went to college, I felt entitled. Like, I deserve this. My parents owe me this. And I guess legally they, they did to a certain extent, right? Not, not to, the, not to the, the greatness of the meals, but they, they were entitled to feed me. But when I got to college, I was out of the house. I was 18. I was no longer a minor. I did not deserve for them to buy me food. But out of their graciousness and out of their love for me, they did. And it gave me a heart of gratitude. Who are people in your life that you look at and you say, that is a grateful person. That is a thankful person. If you were list out a couple that stick out in your head, you probably discover, as I do, that it's really irrespective of their financial income, isn't it? There are rich people who are very thankful. There are, there are middle-class people that are very thankful. And there are poor people who are extremely thankful for what God has given to them. And what we see is that gratitude is not based on our income, but it's based on our heart. When we understand how unworthy we are, even for our daily bread, it makes us thankful for everything that God has given to us. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread to foster gratitude. We also pray it to remind us of our daily dependence upon God. You know, it's interesting. Jesus does not say, give us this day our monthly bread. <laughs> it seems easier, right? If God would just give us the bread for a month. But he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you know the Old Testament stories, this might remind you of the Exodus story. When God brings his people Israel up out of Egypt, and here are these hundreds of thousands of people wandering in the wilderness with nothing to eat, and they are desperately dependent on God to provide food. We read in Exodus 16.4 that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. On Fridays, they were supposed to gather two days' portions for the Sabbath, but, but generically, they gather gathered a day's portion and no more. He says that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Some people went out and tried to gather more than a day's portion, and what they found was that it either rot or it was infested with worms and it started to stink. The only time that the bread was, was preserved for the next day is when they gathered it the day before the Sabbath when the Lord said, take two days' worth of food. And so God tells us only take a daily portion. He tells them only take a daily portion. And the question is why? Why does God tell the Israelites only take a daily portion? Why does Jesus tell us to pray only for our daily bread? Well, it's because he is showing us something about our spiritual condition through our physical addition. That we are desperately in need of God every single day of our life. We don't just need him on once a week, come to church, turn away, walk away, come back to church on Sunday. You need him every moment of every day, even more than you need food. He, he's like oxygen, right? We, we take oxygen for granted, don't we? I mean, when's the last time some of you thank God for oxygen? Like in the past year, anyone? We take it for granted. One person, maybe? We take it for granted, and yet if it ceased to exist we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? God, through his grace, provides for your daily bread. And you and I, I'm assuming, take it for granted. And so we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread to remind us that we are 
desperately dependent daily upon God. And finally, we do this to intercede for the church. Again, Jesus does not pray, give me this day my daily bread. It is give us this day our daily bread. We are not only praying for those who have plenty, but we are praying for those who are in want, both in Jacob's well, in the church in Green Bay, in America, in the church universal. There are many who do not know where they will get their next meal. And so we pray for the church at large that God would provide this day our daily bread. And so that's the fourth petition. The fifth petition. The fifth and sixth petition are kind of confusing, I would say. Uh, they're, they're a little bit difficult to understand and even maybe a little bit more difficult to explain. And so hopefully I'll be able to communicate it in a clear way. Petition five, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now let's break it down. There's two parts to that. First, forgive us our debts. Debts is a metaphor of the penalty for sin. That all of us, because we have rebelled against God, because we have sinned against God, we are indebted to God. And it is an indebtedness that we could never repay, no matter how good we are or for how long we live. We are indebted to God. The American Household Credit Card Debt Statistics were recently released this month, and they reported the following. They said the average credit card debt for a U.S. household is over 15000 Some of you have probably been in credit card debt. You know how oppressive that can be, how weighty that can be. The average mortgage debt is $147,000, and the average student loan debt is $31,000. So altogether, the average debt of a household is almost $200,000. Now imagine if you had no means to pay for that debt. Imagine that you had no job. Imagine that you had no collateral. Imagine that you had no skills that you could even get a job. How oppressive would that be for the debtors, the debtors calling you, the creditors, excuse me, the creditors calling you, demanding payment for your debt? Well, maybe you would come to the realization, I can't pay my debt. And so you go to the bank, and you go to the bank, and you say, you know, this past Sunday, Pastor Dan said that we should pray to God to forgive us our debts. And I was just wondering, would you be like God? Would you forgive me my debts? What would they do? They would laugh at you. When you left, they would mock you. But what if? What if the teller says, you know what, wait one moment. And he goes, gets president of the bank. President of the bank comes out, looks at your debt, tears it up, says, your debt is released. You don't owe us a penny. <laughs> How would you respond? <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, billboards, tell my neighbors. Everyone would hear about this debt that was forgiven of me from my bank. People would be lining up to go and, and invest in this bank. The debt that God has forgiven us is greater than any financial debt you can incur. Mac, the spiritual debt that you have before God because of your sin is greater than our national debt, as big as that is. And so we realize that we cannot repay this debt. And so we come and we pray, God, forgive us our sins. David acknowledges that every sin we have is against God. In Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Every sin that you commit, whether it be against your spouse, your friend, your kids, your parents, 
It's against them, but it is also against God. And your debt is not only, it's not only vast, it's growing. It's accumulating every day. With every sin, your debt grows. And so we come to God and we pray, forgive us our debts. Now, we must first pray this on a macro scale, confessing to God that we are sinners in his sight, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope except for his sovereign mercy. And so we pray, God, would you forgive us our debts? Now, God is ready and willing for those who come to him with genuineness and honesty and a broken heart to forgive your debts. But make no mistake, forgiving debt is not cheap. Forgiving debt is not free. Forgiving debt is very, very costly to the one who is forgiving. It is, they have to absorb the debt of the other party. The offender has to absorb the debt of the offending party. Imagine the bank, if you went in and they said, you said, I have $200,000 debt, will you forgive it? And they said, sure, we'll forgive it. They have to absorb that debt. When we come to God with our spiritual bankruptcy, and we say, God, will you forgive us our spiritual debt? He is ready to forgive, but it comes at great cost to himself. We look to the cross and we see what it took for God to absorb our debt, our debt of sin. Jesus Christ at the cross paid in full our debt before God that we could live forgiven in him. And so have you asked God for this forgiveness? Have you come to him recognizing your sin and said, Lord God, please forgive me. If you are, then you are forgiven. All your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins are washed away. They are forgiven. And that is glorious news. And so we must first ask for forgiveness on a macro scale for all of our life. But then we also ask for forgiveness on a micro scale. And this is where it starts to get a little bit confusing. When we are, when when you look at the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the question is, is, is Jesus teaching us to say, God, look at my example. Look how I can forgive debts. Why don't you forgive my debt like I forgive other people's debts? God, you could learn a thing or two from me. Certainly not. God learns nothing from us. Or is he saying, Jesus teaching us to say, that in order to gain God's forgiveness, we have to forgive others, as in we will never be saved unless we forgive every other person that's wronged us. Well, that wouldn't make sense with the rest of Scripture that tells us that, that salvation is a gift from God. And so what does it mean when it says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors? Well, I think what we have to keep in mind is that the Lord's Prayer is given to the disciples. It's given to Christians, those who have been fully forgiven in Christ, those who are children of God. That's why they address God as our Father. And so we pray this as Christians. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is not teaching us to pray for forgiveness onto salvation, but praying for, sal- for forgiveness onto communion with God. Let me see how I can explain this. So when you trust in Christ for your salvation, you are united to him for your salvation, and nothing can break your union with Jesus Christ. Nothing in the whole world, not your unforgiveness, not your sin, nothing. But what can make your, excuse me, but what can make your relationship grow cold is sin 
that separates your communion with God. Does that make sense? So let me give this example. So if you take a couple, a lot of times couples, uh, they'll come into my office for marriage counseling, and they're married, and they're committed to being married, but there's frustrations in the marriage. And as we talk about it, what we discover is that there is subtle sins throughout their life. They, they gotten busy, they gotten distracted, they stopped pursuing each other, and they have slowly grown apart. And although their union is still there, their communion has grown cold. They become roommates in the same house, or they, they spend their whole life trying not to fight with one another. And so what the forgiveness God is talking about here is forgiveness that Christians ask for. Forgiveness that we say, Lord, forgive me for what I did today as we list out the things that come to our mind of the sin that we have committed so that we could become, so that we could come back into beautiful, intimate, wonderful, glorious relationship with the Father. Our union with Christ will never be broken, but we can restore our communion with God through repentance and asking for forgiveness. Now, what does this have to do with the second part. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We learned a very important lesson here. If you go on to verse, let me read verse 14 and 15 to you again. God says, or Jesus says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is a very difficult statement to read, isn't it? And what God is teaching us is that you cannot be at war with another one of his children and be at peace with him. That you need to forgive those in the body of Christ if you are going to experience the full forgiveness of God. I had lunch with a gentleman a few weeks ago, and he told me about his relationship with his two sons. Each of his sons he loves very dearly, and he has great communication with each of them. But his sons don't communicate with one another. There has been friction in the past. There has been disappointment in the past, and they don't really communicate with one another. And he told me about how much this grieves his heart, how he prays every day that these brothers would be reconciled, that they would, that they would start talking again, that there would be repentance and forgiveness, that they'd be joined together, because the reality is, is that neither of those sons can have the full relationship with the Father they want until they have a relationship with one another. And so what Jesus Christ is challenging us here is that we must forgive one another if we expect to fully experience the forgiveness of God. You are forgiven past, present, future for all of your sins, but if you want to enjoy that forgiveness, you must forgive those around you. The reality is life is not fair. People have sinned against you in horrible ways. Maybe they deserve to go to jail. Maybe they deserve to not be in your life anymore for one reason or another, but you are still called to forgive them. Because until you forgive them, you cannot experience the full forgiveness of God. All right, we're running out of time. Petition six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just to be clear, God does not tempt us to evil. Uh, James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts with no one. We see that the one who tempts is the tempter, Satan. When Jesus is getting ready to go out into the wilderness, we read in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then it goes on to call the devil the tempter. And so Satan is the one who tempts us. We're also tempted by the world and by our own flesh. But God does not tempt us. But here's the interesting thing. When we pray, 
lead us not into temptation. This word temptation is also translated trials or testing. About half of the time, in fact, in the New Testament, it's translated testing or trials. And so this word is used of Satan's agenda to tempt us into sin, but it's also used to discuss God's agenda to put testing and trials in our life that we might grow in godliness and that he might receive glory. Let me give you a quick example of how a single situation can go both be a temptation from Satan and a test from God. A few years ago, and I can't remember if I've ever shared this story with you, but I pulled up to the gas station that was at uh, Cardinal Road in 29. It's torn down now. And I pulled up there grieving over the prices of gas, as I do every time I pull up there. And, um, and I pull up, and I fill up my tank of gas. I put in, I don't know, 11, 11 gallons worth or something. And I hang up the thing, and it says I owe uh, like $4.25. And I'm sitting there thinking, did, I, did it work? Did the, did the gas come out? What happened? Well, I looked at the receipt. I looked at the, the, the fuel tank. I looked at my gas gauge in my car, and my car was full. And so I looked closer, and I saw that, that whoever entered the price per gallon uh, missed the decimal point. <laughs> They moved it over, and so instead of being $3.40 a gallon, it was $0.34 cents a gallon, all right? And so there I am. I'm in a hurry. I want to go. I got to leave. You know, this isn't my fault. This is their fault. Plus, it's a big corporation, so who really cares? Will they even notice, right? So the question is, is this a temptation from Satan to sin, or is this a test from God to show forth his glory? And the answer is both, Right? And so God uses those temptations, those tests in our life to show us his glory, to show us his power in us, that he transforms us. And so we pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The reality is, is that while we pray not to be tempted, not to be tested, it's good to pray those things. Sometimes for God's glory, he leads you into that. And when he leads you into that, you pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. The evil one, Satan, the evil in the world, and the evil that is even inside of us. God, deliver us from evil because we have no power to conquer it on our own. So we look at verses 11, 13, and we see that we are to pray, give us this day our daily bread, fostering gratitude in our hearts, daily dependence upon God, and interceding for the universal church. We pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, reminding ourselves of the necessity to forgive others and go before our Heavenly Father and daily live a lifestyle of repentance. And then we pray, pray, let us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, in which we pray against situations that would leave us prone to sin. But if we are in those situations, that he would give us the power to escape from the evil. Let me end with this story, another kid's story. At our house, many times throughout the day, Kids will come up to me or Trish, and they'll say, Dad, can I have a pretzel? Dad, can I have some nachos? Dad, can I have a treat? Whatever it might be. And many times during the day, I say, yeah, sure, you can have pretzel or nachos or whatever. But whenever it gets around lunchtime or dinner time, I'll say, you know what? No, you can't eat right now because lunch is coming up or dinner is coming up, and we want you to eat the good food, not the junk food. And they'll respond in two different ways. Sometimes they will just fall on the ground and cry. And other times they'll just say, okay, and you're th sitting there thinking, wow, praise God, that's amazing. When they say okay, 
It's because they're trusting mom and dad's judgment. They know mom and dad care for them and love them. I know we mentioned this a few times, but honestly, it bears repeating. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, when we take the six petitions, it's absolutely critical that we understand that the first three petitions are not about us. It's about God. It's about God's kingdom, about God's glory, and about God's will. And it's within those that we pray, Father, will you give us our daily bread? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation. And whatever his response might be, yes or no, he might not say lunch is around the corner. He may not say dinner's coming up, but he might just simply say no. And if he tells us that, it's because we are trusting that God has a greater plan, unbeknownst to us. And so we pray, we offer our petitions to God. He wants to hear your desires. He wants to hear your wants. He wants to hear your needs. But we pray all of those things under the understanding that God has a greater plan than we can hope or imagine, and we rest in that. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you asking you, give us our daily bread. God, help us to forgive those in our life that we are struggling to forgive, that we might experience the full forgiveness you have for us in Christ. God, lead us not into temptation. Give us, lead us in paths of righteousness, righteousness, Lord. And yet, if we end up in those situations, God, we pray that you would be glorified by leading us out of evil. God, we are needy, needy, needy children, and we forget that frequently, but we desperately need you to provide for us today and every day of our life, and we trust you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.